The prefrontal cortex, that's what we're going to start with. The prefrontal cortex, for those of you unaware, is part of your brain. It's part of the frontal lobe, and that's about the extent of the knowledge about the prefrontal cortex that I have. Uh, I know it works with executive functions, or it helps our executive functions, which are basically who we are, what we are, what we do, the decisions we make, and it's extremely important about our personality. It, it kind of forms our personality, that is my current understanding, and what I found out is it actually takes up to 25 years to develop. 25 years to develop. So your prefrontal cortex, the part of you, the, the part of the, the human body that actually encompasses who you are, the decisions you make, the executive functions that you do, can take up to 25 years to develop. And this, I'm not going to get political, but this could be a reason why when you're younger, you're all over the place when it comes to decisions, who you want to be, what you want to do, and all that sort of stuff, which is why it's interesting, which is why I'm uh, interested in how this could actually affect your decisions in school, because obviously in education, you take your subjects. You you do, obviously, depending on the, the school system you're in in the UK, you do primary school. So you're in primary school, you don't really have any choices in the decisions you make. Then you go to secondary school, and then you have a couple of optional choices. I, I say optional choices, there are very limited choices for the schools that I went to anyway. And then you go to college, where you dive really, really deep into like three A-levels or B-techs or whatever you do. And then university, which is adult education, which in theory is more uh, specific. But even though it's more specific, you actually have way more to talk about, way more to look at, way more to think about, because you are you are given access to essentially the world of knowledge, the world of research, knowledge, peer-reviewed uh, literature, and that is where, for me, my education actually starts to expand, because yes, I'm supposed to be diving deep into this one area, for me, undergraduate, that's sports coaching, but sports coaching's massive, that's psychology, philosophy, anatomy and physiology, biology, skill acquisition, etc, etc, and the 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 point at 25 years so i'm not even 25 now so my prefrontal cortex may not even be fully developed but uh when but by the time you start to go into adult education you really get an understanding of okay these are some of the things i'm interested in these are some of the points i'd like to explore etc etc and something i blogged about recently was about this this understanding of when and where and how to learn things because adult education there are skills that you develop things that you learn that i i think we could certainly learn earlier on or later uh, earlier on in school or not necessarily as late as we learn it in the uk anyways such as just finding a finding a, an interest and then asking questions exploring those questions fight trying to find answers to those questions rather than just accepting the the first answer is true because accepting the first answer is true accepting the teacher is right is actually an issue that we have in general society in general world i think because we just if, if someone has power, perceived power or status, we just accept that they know what they're talking about and, and believe them. And yes, we need to make assumptions sometimes. And that is how the world works, especially in politics, because there are so many things in politics that people just don't understand. So you pick someone that makes sense. You, you assume that they have done the research. You assume that they know what they're talking about, but we don't actually know. And when it comes to health questions or questions about how you live, how you work uh, and human performance in general... You really need to understand how to question, how to be curious around something. And if that's not a skill that we learn until we're 23, 24, 25, when our prefrontal cortex is actually fully developed or getting fully developed, then essentially we've been living 23, 24 years or 20 round years of just 
not really knowing what's going on and we we can see in research that our childhood our adolescence years are the most impactful in who we are going to be so surely we should teach those skills before that and when seeing this 25 year year sort of like barrier boundary uh, time span it really makes you think okay child education what are we actually doing about it that's helping them develop skills later on in life and i think technology has actually played a big role in this moving forward so i don't know whether it's going to be a good role or a bad role we will see but technology now people are online they are seeing those questions they're seeing different arguments backwards and forwards for better or worse and that is certainly going to impact how they approach things later on. And I can see it now. I, I see parents and people say sort of same age as my parents, so sort of 50, 50 and over, and they get challenged by a lot of youths because the youth population are so used to challenging other people's thoughts because that's what happens online. Everyone challenges everyone else. Everyone disagrees with everyone else. They don't necessarily uh, communicate in the best way because communication skills online are completely different to in person, but they are still challenging the authority of individuals and of people in management, and people in management typically are from an older generation, don't like the challenge. And that is where I think, when you look at Simon Sinek's work, people from an older generation, because they haven't had this this challenge, this this cancel culture almost this technology online world because they haven't had that they're they're not really sure how to respond but then on the other side of things the the younger and the younger generation that are challenging people don't really know how to do that in an appropriate way so it's trying to find the balance between uh challenging them but challenging them with respect respect is a word that i feel maybe maybe getting lost a little bit but the 25 year gap as soon as you hit 25 i feel like i mean that's where i'm hitting and i think that's where a lot of my audience are sort of like the the mid to late 20s early 30s those sort of years are where okay my brain is somewhat fully developed i understand what's going on there is a purpose there is a drive and i have the skills and and enough experience to actually do something with my life with whatever it is that's going on and you can actually start answering some of those bigger questions is what's the purpose of life those sort of things um and during my recent exploration, my recent dive into sleep, I said this in the um, in the newsletter recently. My dive on sleep was meant to be deliberate. I'm going to look at how I can improve my sleep. And you know what I found? I found that the same thing that I was just talking about. Loads of people were just repeating other people's work. Uh, and you, you, you really start to question, okay, are you making up your own claims? Are you doing your own research or is that that? So I went on my own deep dive and found loads of things I was not expecting. Now, caffeine. Caffeine is a drug. We all know it's a drug. And caffeine, we, we know or we are told caffeine is bad for sleep. Yes. But when you actually look at caffeine as a drug, it's good for literally everything else. Um, now, everyone drinks caffeine, and caffeine, like, when you look at the history of caffeine, it's interesting. People used caffeine to essentially drug the workforce so they could work more. Uh, and w- when you look at that from a moral or ethical perspective, it's interesting. You sort of, you look at the, the people in charge and go, okay, you guys need to work more in the factory. I'm going to give you a five-minute break to give you drugs to help you perform better. Why caffeine happened to be that drug, <laughs> I'm not really sure. I mean, you could pick loads of other drugs that also uh, help performance. But caffeine was the drug that they've picked, and obviously now it's just socially acceptable to, to use caffeine. But caffeine's one negative is sleep. And 
if caffeine is going to decrease your sleep, then is there going to be actually sort of diminishing returns on, obviously, when you drink caffeine, when you consume caffeine, with the, the effects that it has on sleep? Now, I personally don't consume any caffeine. I don't drink coffee, I don't drink tea, or anything else that consumes caffeine in, so my sleep isn't affected. But does that mean my performance throughout the day is decreased? I don't know. I don't think so. I haven't done that test, so I can't say either way. But thinking about that point raised with when Tim Ferriss was talking to, uh, I think it was Michael Pollan, Michael Pollan, I believe, uh, they were talking about drugs and loads of different types of drugs. Caffeine is a drug. Caffeine is an addictive drug, but it helps performance. So finding that balance certainly key, especially for high-performance athletes, whether that is in sport or in business or in life in general. So it's it's finding the right balance of caffeine, I think, that is the issue. But then uh, that that's my take on all of the different drugs. And cannabis is another drug that I've been uh, exposed to recently, not actually like being exposed to as in a uh, podcast listened to. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, Flow Re- the Flow Research Collective Radio, um, they, they did a podcast with Don Moxley. And Don Moxley is, I wouldn't say a cannabis expert, <laughs> uh, but he uses cannabis as a drug to help recovery. And what he was saying is we can't overdose on cannabis. Now, don't quote me on that because I don't know. I need to do more research into this. But apparently we cannot overdose on cannabis. And cannabis is extremely useful in helping recovery, especially looking at heart rate variability and the different ways that endocannabinoid uh, drive. Yes, yes, I said that. Endocannabinoid. The endocannabinoid, oh, love that word, uh, drive affects our ability to recover so it can speed up recovery reduce different levels of hormones in our body which can inhibit recovery and what this allows you to do is obviously recover from activity recover from stress recover from emotional load quicker so that you can perform um, again sooner you can perform at your higher levels sooner now this is cannabis and cannabis is illegal in a lot of states and i believe it's illegal in the uk as well i don't know i don't really pay that much attention to drugs because i don't take drugs like any drugs other than like paracetamol and the things i need to put in my eye besides the point but cannabis caffeine both of them drugs one of them legal one of them helps performance one of them illegal one of them helps recovery interesting <laughs> interesting how that works with the drug world and when you look at supplements as well i tweeted this the other day drugs supplements what's the difference the the biggest difference is how we see they could work in 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 society because a lot of the the main drugs yes there are health risks but there are also health risks to caffeine because caffeine kills a lot of people when you look at how they work and what they do with their lives they're they're addicted to caffeine and you look at some of the other drugs that it's really not that impactful. I mean, cannabis, obviously, in moderation, caffeine in moderation, and loads of other drugs that we've been brought up. Again, I can't remember off the top of my head names because I don't do drugs, I don't know drugs. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's certainly uh, a way of looking at things that I think we need to address. And when you look at the psychedelics, psychedelics is another type of drug, another category of drug that I've I've seen go around. I know Tiago Forte has spoken about psychedelics recently as well. Uh, I say recently, probably about a month ago, but it's fresh in my mind because recapping all those stuff in my notes. Uh, but yes, psychedelics can obviously impact the way that you think, the way that you feel. And again, relating this back to sort of sleep and the different ways you look at knowledge, psychedelics are supposedly bad and most of them are banned. They are either illegal or very hard to get hold of, but they help in therapy they are they are clinical um they are clinical drugs that help with depression help with anxiety help with stress and if they can increase performance or increase recovery or decrease performance inhibitors then why aren't we using them
because they're dangerous, but <laughs> everything's dangerous to a level. So I, I think it's one of those things where we need to find the balance, legal balance, ethical balance, moral balance, um, but give the give the high-level performers or people that are struggling the, the flexibility to use them. Now, I'm not going to get into a, a, a legal or moral uh, argument there, but when it comes to using drugs, all drugs are, are hormones. It, well, they, they affect hormones, they're molecules that affect our body, but we food <laughs> food plants same thing we use different types of food to affect our body and when you look at the supplements that we put the supplements the additives that we add to the food <laughs> most of them are negative they make things taste better but they they affect our health negative most of the things when you think like saturated fats and loads of sugars and all the other stuff that we add to our food we add molecules to our food that negatively impacts our health because of the few for the the, the effects on food drive, and we we have become an obese nation because of the things, or obese nation, obese uh, population, because of the things we have added to food to make it taste better, to make it feel better. Well, isn't that what drugs are? Psychedelic drugs? They make us feel better. <laughs> but, we're, but we're not allowed to take those, but we're allowed to add stuff to food. It's, it's a very interesting argument, something that I never really thought about. Uh, and when it comes to psychedelics, psychedelics, uh, I'm going to link this to biphasic sleep so uh oh what's his name wheezy waiter i cannot remember the guy's actual name but wheezy wheezy waiter is the name of the channel and i've watched him for a while and he does lots of different things uh different challenge videos but his challenge videos are a little bit different it's they are they are very blunt i have done this i have struggled here i struggled there and i'm going to try and do these things but he doesn't just do it willy-nilly he actually does a little bit of research and something that he looked into was hunger cues leptin and ghrelin G-H-R-E-L-I-N, ghrelin, and both of those hormones, both of, the, both of those cues I, I've actually come across in my sleep, in my uh, in my sleep research, and he was doing biphasic sleep, and he's come across those, and they're hunger hormones, and the hunger hormones are obviously affected by drugs, <laughs> by, by sleep and by drugs, so people could take drugs to enhance their sleep, and therefore enhance their hunger hormones, which could enhance nutritional uh, cues, uh, just habit, just nutritional habits, and, and then you become a healthy person by taking drugs and, and supplements and, and, and nutrients. So I, I have no intention of taking it myself because I much prefer taking, I would say, natural supplements, just having good sleep habits, good nutritional habits, good exercise habits and then you don't, you don't need to supplement things but some people do need to supplement because they are in they are inefficient is that the right word yeah i think inefficient in in some things in some ways and biphasically what he was what he found was his hunger cues were all over the place <laughs> so he he affected his sleep which isn't a drug it isn't a supplement he affected an uh, a habit in his life biphasic sleep and it affected his hunger cues he was hungry at three in the morning and he'd never been hungry at three in the morning before uh so affecting just habits affect different hunger cues. So maybe if you want to change a habit, you then supplement that habit with a drug, with something that could help you move forwards. And this again, this is an argument that I, I'm looking into and I would urge people to actually consider. I'm not considering taking drugs. That's what I'm saying. Well, not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is 
consider the effects of the actions that you take and how they could mimic other drugs because some people take caffeine instead of having good sleep like you could get rid of the drug you could get rid of all the negatives of the caffeine drug by just changing actions or you could get rid of all the negatives of certain supplements you take so protein maybe some people take whey protein or whatever it is and they they take the supplement but they could just eat more protein or consume more protein in different sources, whether that's uh, nuts or meats or whatever. So that's just changing a, a habit, a nutritional habit, to stop the supplement. J just a thought, just a thought I'm putting out there. Uh, and I'm going to relate this to psychiatry. And this is an argument that I, the, another argument that I heard, and I, it was just, it was an interesting one, right? Okay, so this came from the Huberman Lab and Carl, I can't say that name, Dyseroth? Again, links in the description, you can see the links in the, so I will have a link to my website in the description wherever you're listening to this, and all the links to all of the points that I've brought up will be there, but psychopathy can't be measured, but neurology can be measured. And this was an interesting, interesting thing because I've been looking into uh, neuro, neuro, neurology, neurobiochemistry, and all of the neurosciences. Uh, and neurology can be measured because you use brain scans to measure uh, electrical signals in the brain, other hormones that are affected in the brain. Whereas psychopathy, psychiatry, psychology, those sort of things can't be measured because they're words and feelings. And just because you can see something in the brain, oh, they, I, think I'm, I, th I think they are feeling this, doesn't necessarily mean they are. And when I was looking at that, when I was, well, when I was looking at that, when I was listening to that, I was thinking, you know what? It's so true, and I'm going to relate this to knowledge. Because when you look at knowledge, again, I blogged about this recently, psych uh, psychology is feelings. You can't really measure it. Neurology, you can measure it. When you learn skills, you can measure it. I've learned this skill because I can juggle three balls for five minutes, for ten minutes. I learned this skill because I can stand on my feet on stilts for a minute. I don't know. Um, but you can measure those skills. Whereas you can't measure knowledge because you can't know whether you know it or not. And when you do know it, maybe you'll lose it, but you don't know you've lost it until you test it. And that's obviously why, why tests are there, but tests only test specific questions, which is why the, the answer of, okay, how do you measure knowledge is almost impossible to find because I don't think knowledge itself is measurable. I don't think you can measure knowledge because then it becomes regurgitative knowledge, not understanding of the concepts and the knowledge that you have. So I would argue that psychopathy, psychiatry, psychology, all of that sort of things, stuff, is knowledge, is understanding, is thoughts, is concepts. And the only way to measure that is through practice and behaviours. So what habits do you have? What behaviours do you have? What's your, what's your default uh, tendencies of how you act, how you behave, how you respond to certain things? And that is, I think, how they measure psychology in a lot of ways. Like they measure um, performance psychology through the habits, that they, the habits that they have when it comes to response. So if there is a stress stimulus, how do they behave? And then they can link that back to psychology. And I think that's the same in knowledge. If you are given a question or given a situation where knowledge is required and you don't use the knowledge that you supposedly have, then obviously you don't know it. No, don't know that thing well enough. And this comes back to preach what you practice. Don't practice what you preach. Preach what you're actually doing. So talk about what you're actually doing. Talk about your habits. Talk about your behaviors. And then you're actually doing it. You're 
You're talking about what you're doing rather than talking about doing things that you're not doing because like practicing what you preach is I, you should do this, you should do that. I'm learning this, I'm taking these notes, but you're not actually doing it. So you're not in the in the trenches, uh, as, a, as an S&C reference there. You're not in the trenches, you're not doing the work. So it can't really be measured. And I see that a lot uh, in, I don't want to say influencers, because a lot of influencers do a lot of good. But some people that share their stories, they don't share their stories. They share other people's stories as if it were their own. And it's sort of like an accountability, I'm going to do this because I've seen other people talk about this, but I don't practice it myself. And for me, that I, that's immoral. Uh, um, I, I personally don't want to do that, which is why some of the videos take me hours to do because I have to practice this thing. I have to practice this stuff. So I'm preaching what I practice. And when it comes to measuring that, I can measure my behaviors. I can measure my actions. The 30 day challenges from uh, Wheezy Waiter. I can measure what it is that I'm doing and then link that back to the knowledge that I have. Okay, I have A, B, C and D pieces of knowledge. But when I found myself in a situation where I needed A, B, C, and D, or I could have used A, B, C, and D, I only used A and B. I obviously don't know C and D well enough to apply it into practice. I need to go back and look at that, or I need to think about that more when I'm learning these things and putting it into practice. Because learning it is great, but if you can't put it into practice, then you're not actually learning it. You're not using it. And this is something that really grinds my gears sometimes with the note-taking world, the Zettelkasten world, is they have so many friggin' notes, loads of Zettels and blah, 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 but they don't do anything with it. They, they just don't use it. Uh, and this is where my notes, all of my working notes, I use day-to-day. -day. And you, you will see it. You've probably heard it in conversations where I say, oh, yeah, I have a note on that. I have an atomic note on this. My note says that. And I relate all of the notes that I have because they are the A, B, C, D knowledge points. They are the knowledge points. And I, I reference them in conversation. And then I bring them up in my habits. And I do them. I actively practice what it is that I take down. So all of the notes I've taken on sleep, I actively practice. Oh. I, I, I actively practice where it helps me most, when it helps me most, in the context and the nuance environments that actually have an impact. Because there's no point me meditating before I go to sleep uh, if I am not that stressed. The point of meditation, the reason meditation helps you before you go to sleep, is it decreases the stress hormones, the stress responses, and helps sleep that way but if you're not stressed and there are no high levels of cortisol or dopamine or whatever that, that meditation helps you with if you're not stressed or any of that then meditation isn't going to help so there's no point doing it it's just a, a 10 20 minute waste of time <laughs> having said that though if you're doing it for a different reason i.e getting away from screens and just closing your eyes for 10 minutes before you go to sleep then that is a different reason to doing it again bringing in context and nuance to the actions and behaviors but i need to know why i'm meditating before sleep what the different impacts are so i'm applying those different knowledge notes into my actions and behaviors and then practicing it i'm actually practicing it rather than just talking about i'm going to meditate before i go to sleep but don't know why yes anyway get off get off your soapbox danny <laughs> and okay so back 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 to the neuroscience the royal institution uh, did a did a, a lecture and they do lots of lectures and this one was from eleanor Maguire. this is the one i'm referencing and she was saying you can go forwards and backwards in time with your memory so your memory is a way to go forwards and backwards in time because what you're doing is you're looking backwards in time 
learning from those lessons backwards in time, applying it to now, and then predicting what's happening in future. So you're using the past to predict the future to then impact your actions now. And it was really interesting looking at that as, as an analogy because your memory is your your time time travel machine. You're looking backwards in time. You're looking at all of the accumulated knowledge that you have backwards in time to then educate and help you predict what could happen in future to then impact what you're doing now. The one thing uh, about, obviously, all of that previous knowledge is that previous knowledge is going to be restricted to what you can remember and what you have uh, front of mind. And this is where the conversation I had with John, I think uh, the Notion Nerds podcast is back up and running. Uh, I think it will be out by the time this is published, or it will have been out like a couple of days beforehand, so go have a look. But John and I had a conversation about knowledge, and he doesn't take notes, he keeps them in his head. But the way the brain works, it's kind of like a RAM, short-term memory, is if it's not taken out of RAM and put into long-term memory, it's going to be forgotten. That's the way the brain works. Light uh, light sleep actually gets rid of all of those things that are in your RAM so that you're ready for the next day to, to go and keep moving. And that's what note-taking is for. It's to, to keep things there for, for when you want them. And when when you do get rid of those memories, those, those short-term memories because they're, they're not there, you end up building a tree that is biased. And everyone builds up biased trees. You can't get away from that. Uh, but... What you can do is you can remember things, you, you can deliberately remember things that challenge the, the tree you currently have. So when you are looking back on memory, you're not predicting things in the future that is biased. And that is where uh, anxiety, depression, worry loops all form from. They form from memories that are biased in one direction, which only give you one possible future outcome. And then you get worried about the outcome because you, you think, oh no, this is going to be bad. Uh, so for example, from my own world, when speaking in front of people, when, when I was younger, speaking in front of people, I only remembered the negative times. I only remembered the negative times where, where things happened. So I got picked on or I made a mistake or people laughed at something or someone was saying something while I was talking and I found that disrespectful. Uh, and all of those negative emotions to speaking in front of people became my my, my long-term memory in history. But the times where I spoke and people learnt something or people heard what I was saying or there was a positive outcome, I didn't remember those because I, I, they were short-term memories. I chose not to note them down or remember them in my own, my own memory bank and I just had these negative connotations to talking in front of people. And then future predictions became, oh, that's going to be negative, don't do that. So my action became, don't talk in front of people, don't talk... Um, out in public or uh, whatever and that that wasn't that wasn't useful for me because my biased history affected my present because of the assumptions i had for the future hopefully this is making sense so what i had to do and what i what i do now is i make sure i take notes on all of the positives and negatives so when i look back in history i'm not just looking at the short term memories that i've decided to keep but i'm also looking back in my notes at the positives of what it is and what that allows me to do is have an educated formulated opinion about future predictions that can then impact my my behaviors now hopefully I, I i kept you with that one but that's where my brain was going when i was listening to this I was like yes we're traveling forwards and backwards in time with our memory i love it and that is how we learn that is how we learn and that is what we do uh, and i'm going to link this to a a mere exposure effect that was brought up by uh, the bliss bean now the mere exposure effect i've come i came across that years and years and years ago um probably first year uni to be honest but the bliss bean spoke about it and she was talking about notes and notes from books 
and it was and it was interesting because she she is moving into for for, for people unfamiliar she's a student uh, and she's moving into the world of sort of zettelcast and note taking she's moving into the pkm world which is interesting uh, and seeing her journey just reminded me that the mere exposure effect she she brought stuff she was like yeah this is really good uh, and the mere exposure effect for those that are unfamiliar is a psychological phenomenon where people develop a preference for things merely because they are familiar with them so you have a preference to do something because you're familiar with it so people in the Zettelkasten space they are going to lean that way because they're familiar with it rather than going elsewhere uh, and when when we're familiar with learning familiar with note-taking familiar with PKM familiar with something we're going to lean in that direction and again right this relates heavily back to memories if you're biased if your roots of memory are biased through mere exposure then you need to expose yourself to something else. And it was it was interesting mainly because she was looking at everything everyone else was looking at. She was looking at space repetition, active recall, Zettelkasten, para, all of the stuff that's out there. She was looking at it. And she was go- she's going to be exposed to everything else that we're exposed to. But she's a beginner. So she can look at other things. And when you look at her comment section, the people that have been in the PKM space just pushed a couple of different ideas. So she's going to come into this PKM space, into this note-taking space, with a different uh, memory route. Uh, memory route, uh, I'm using that from Caroline Leaf's work. There you go, active recall, um, memory in in, uh, in action right there. Yeah, Caroline Leaf was talking about memory roots in a tree. Uh, and, and she's going to have different roots into this world. So even though it is the mere exposure effect, sorry for the screaming, it's mere mere exposure effect for each individual. And I, I, it was just an interesting track. And I'm going to link this to a knowledge stack and personal monopoly. And this was a point I heard from uh, Lorena, Lorena Fabriga. I have no idea how you say that. I apologize if you are listening. Um, <laughs> but she was talking with David Perel and she was part of the um, privilege. Uh, what's it? Not the privilege, the passage, rite of passage. And she was part of the rite of passage course. And what she was talking about was that you need your, your personal monopoly. And that's what David talks about in his course. You need a knowledge stack. Uh, what you are. Uh, and what 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 you and only you can help with uh, basically so the knowledge base you have the specific knowledge base you have that you can help other people with and this is this is useful for a lot of people like okay this is where my knowledge base is this is what i'm going to help people with but for those that are sort of in this in this world of uh, long lifelong learning and pkm and note taking etc it's it's challenging and it's difficult and when when you actually look at it when i've looked at this uh, from a a standpoint of specific knowledge i have specific knowledge in the areas that i explore which is human performance but human performance is literally every area and it's interesting because she she spoke about human monopoly as a journey and and it never really ends it never really finishes and you're always evolving and shifting so this human monopoly this knowledge stack this specific knowledge base isn't actually specific <laughs> because it's evolving so it's specific in time and that and that's what i think um was left out in this conversation is that the, the the knowledge stack you have is specific in time. When you look at most people that write online, that do this entrepreneurial stuff, that talk about anything, is there are phases, phases of interest. They have phases of interest where, okay, I'm interested in this tool, this tech, 
this philosophy, this piece of research, and there is specific knowledge at that point of time, and that becomes their personal monopoly. Not, this is my personal monopoly, this is my niche, this is my identity, full stop. It's, this is my identity, excuse me, this is my identity now, this is what I'm learning now, this is what I can help with now, but in a few months, that may be slightly different. And the overall and the overall theme underneath all of that, most of the time, is human performance. And it just depends what, what direction you take into human performance. So I'm going to take just a couple of names as example. I'm going to obviously use, um, what was her name? Lorena. Yeah, I'm going to take Lorena as an example. So she helps with children. Children's education. Well, that's human performance because it's education. Human performance. How do you learn as a child moving forwards? Thiago Forte. Knowledge management. Okay. How do you learn? <laughs> that is literally human performance. That's learning. Human performance. Um, and then David Perel. Writing. Well, that's learning how to use your knowledge and condense your knowledge into a way that can be shared with other people. Well, that's increasing other people's performance because they're learning more things so all of learning is human performance but they've taken different aspects into learning one's taken child education one's just taken knowledge management one's taken writing but then we look at another perspective take my perspective from strength and conditioning i'm i've gone past the learning and now i'm using that learning in practice so there's theory to practice but it's still human performance. It's helping human performance. So we're all under this umbrella of improving human performance. It's just a specific piece of knowledge at the time that we're actually looking into. And that that's where I'm looking at this knowledge base where I'm thinking, you know what, we're not all niche. We're all looking at human performance. We're all looking to make either our lives easier or we're looking to improve health, improve lives in some way or just not kill the planet too quickly. Uh, <laughs> we're all looking how to do that. And the niche is just the the interest that we have at that time, the specific knowledge base that we're using at that time. And how you evade... <laughs> and it's interesting when it comes to sharing that, because when you're sharing those knowledge bases, how, how are you evaluating your communication skills? How are you evaluating, okay, I have this knowledge, I have this knowledge base, this knowledge monopoly, knowledge stack, specific knowledge, but you need to communicate it in a way that makes sense. So if you're teaching, how are you teaching that? If you're helping someone else, how are you communicating that? And then how are you measuring those communication skills? Because human performance is is measure. We, we measure skills. We're measuring our goals. We're measuring how much we lift, how much we move, how much we've learned, how many flashcards we can get right, or we're measuring the test. Did we get a 100% on the test? But we don't really measure communication skills. What's useful? What's not useful? What's positive? What's negative? What's a good? What's a what's what's a sign of a good piece of communication? Is it that they've just agreed with everything you've said? Yes, everyone has agreed with what I've said. It was good communication. Well, is that good communication? Or is that just people just listening? Going, yep, 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 yep. Okay, and then them not remembering it. Because if they're not remember if they're not remembering what you've said, then they're not learning anything. So do you need to bring some friction into what it is that you're saying? Do you need to trigger them to actually? Think about something, critically analyze something, build a narrative, build an experience around the communication so it's easier to remember. So you can build those memory roots through the narrative, through the story, through the experience. So how are you evaluating communication skills? How are you, evalu how you, how are you evaluating your ability to communicate with other people? 
and what, what feedback are you getting? And that's something that I'm constantly looking at. Whenever I'm putting a video out, I'm looking at the f feedback. You will probably notice on my YouTube channel, I have responded to every single first message because YouTube doesn't uh, show all the other messages, but every single comment I have on a video, I respond to and I try to follow up, follow up with. If people don't at me when they respond, I can't see it. Uh, but I try to respond to everything because I want to see the communication. I want to see what's going on. And I pay attention to everything, even the negatives, because it's actually interesting. A lot of the negatives that I see on the channel is my communication in the video didn't come across clear enough. Either I was too quick or I overlooked something. I made an assumption about knowledge, my understanding, my knowledge that they just didn't have. Early on in my Notion videos, there were there was an assumption that I knew people. Oh, people must know how to do this. People must know how to do that, and they didn't. But they they didn't like the video because I made an assumption about their knowledge because I knew it and I didn't know that. So looking at the comment section, ah, my so their communication was quite harsh. But when I asked them, and you dive deep into what the actual actual reasoning behind their communication was, was it it was down to my my poor communication. So how are you measuring your communication? Are you getting feedback? If you are getting feedback, how are you perceiving that feedback? Is it oh they're negative? Okay, I'm going to ignore them. No. That, that's not how I look at it. They're negative. Why are they negative? What's caused them to be negative? Is it something in their life or is it something that I have done? And and that is how I'm looking at communication. And communication as well, when when I look at videos, is it fun? Is it enjoyable? Um, is it is it entertaining enough to pay attention to the narrative? <laughs> and and a lot of the time that either comes across that that either needs to come across as uh, useful educational like putting lots of things in or some sort of uh, some sort of conflict whether that's cognitive dissonance so you're disagreeing with what I'm saying or whether that's conflict as in I don't like this person conflict uh, I try to avoid that conflict because that that's too much drama too much drama um, and a perfect example of this is Zoom fatigue. Um, Zoom fatigue is something that people have spoken about, obviously, post-COVID. And Adam Grant tweeted about a study that was talking about Zoom fatigue. And I, I tweeted about this. I was like, I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Because what the study said is giving people the option to turn the camera off helped reduce Zoom fatigue. And I completely disagree. Because I found I find it extremely difficult to have a conversation with someone over Zoom uh, when you can't see their faces. Because Zoom is a visual, it's a video call platform. If I, if you, if you're calling someone but you're not seeing them, it's like a phone call. And I find phone calls very difficult to communicate because I can't react to what it is that they're saying because I can't see them, I can't see their body language, I can't see their eyes, and we communicate a lot through body body language and cues like that. So I actually find it more fatiguing to have the video off than on. So I went on Twitter and and found different opinions, and there were different opinions, of course, but it's. It's communicating and finding out, okay, there's some dissonance here. I want to communicate my point and see how that comes across to other people. And the, the thing I want to wrap this, this podcast up with is this note. This note I've had in my head. You will hear me reference it in the Notion Notes podcast as well. I urge you to check that one out. It's me talking with John. Um, beyond the obvious. Looking beyond the obvious. And that is where I think uh, my, my curiosities go. My daily journal my daily audio journal, it goes beyond the obvious. My research goes beyond the obvious. And that is where my research is going to go in videos. Here is here is a here is something that here is an assumption, here is a myth, here is something that we're told to do for human performance. But is it true? I'm gonna go beyond the obvious. Is it true? Dive deep. Why? How? Where? What is actually the point of this thing? Sleep, 
Sleep is massive. But why does temperature matter? Why do I need to meditate before? Go beyond the obvious of the questions and really ask those questions. And bringing it all the way back to that first point about your prefrontal cortex, 25 years. We can ask those questions. And we ask those questions when we're young. We ask why all the time as a child. And it's annoying to adults. But if you don't ask those questions, you can't go beyond the obvious. Thank you for listening. And if you have any curiosities, any contributions to the conversation, do let me know on Twitter at Danny Hatcher. And uh, I will... Uh, and you guys, well, I was going to say I'll see you guys next week, but I won't see you. I keep saying that, so you guys will hear me next week. Over and out.